The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 16. And it is our privilege to come once again this evening to the Lord's table as we observe the second of the ordinances of the church. Uh, the first ordinance is baptism, uh, which is prerequisite to this supper. Uh, baptism belongs to the church, and since baptism is prerequisite to membership in the church, then also it is prerequisite to this celebration that we have of the supper. We're, we're blessed to have been able to have baptism today, this morning. Uh, as I said, we were baptizing. We have several who will have their first communion tonight. And I hope this is a memorable event and for those that will take it for the first time. And then, of course, those of us who have taken it down through the years. We're baptized only once, but we're commanded to observe this supper repetitively. And so we are here tonight to do as the Lord commanded. And the Lord's Supper is very highly symbolic, and in keeping with the idea of symbols, I've chosen this passage of Leviticus chapter 16, which is very, very rich in symbolism. And there is so much here that we'll just barely get a start with all the many subjects that could be talked about from this 16th chapter. There are just so many types and figures that God has given us in tabernacle worship, which is a little bit of what we're going to talk about tonight. Our subject particularly is the Day of Atonement, and that symbolized for Israel the, it was a national day for the covering of national sins. It occurred on the Jewish calendar only once per year. It was anticipated, very highly anticipated, as one of the uh, most notable of the Jewish feasts because the sacrifices that were made on this day and the work of the high priest on this particular day was different from any other celebration that we have coming out of the Old Testament. There's just one day when the priest was able to enter into the holiest part of the tabernacle. On other days, there were sacrifices that were made for individual sins of the people. But on this particular day, the focus was the sins of the nation. And this was a day of accountability for all of Israel. And it was a day that was observed, not necessarily celebrated, because this was a very, very somber, serious, a very solemn day. It was a day of death. The innocent would die, and it was very, very serious because the sins of the people were symbolically atoned. And when I think of the solemnity of this day, I'm drawn to Paul's rebuke of the church at Corinth and how they had made the Lord's Supper a drunken, gluttonous feast. And I think that there are too many churches that really don't give the reverence that is due that they take this ordinance very lightly without contemplating the gravity of the pain and the suffering of Christ that's portrayed in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the cup. And I like the way that we do it here at Berean because we dispense with all frivolity. If there is anything like that in our worship, we do away with that because we don't want to miss the magnitude of the work that Christ did on the cross. This was a day of atonement. 
And it's very important that you understand that word atoned or atonement. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kafar, which means to cover. And the idea of a covering is, of course, to keep something hidden. You cover something to hide it. That's one of the reasons that you do it. And that's what atonement does with our sins. It hides them from the eyes of God. And the sacrifice of Christ was atonement because he covers our sins with his blood and he hides them from the face of God. And let me just mention as, as a side note that the New Testament word for atonement doesn't mean the same as we find in the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament word is only found one time. That's in the book of Romans chapter 5 verse number 11. And the meaning in that verse is not kafar, not covering like we find in the Old Testament. But this is what Paul wrote in Romans 5.11. He says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And the word that's used there is the word catalage, catalage, which actually means reconciliation. Now, when he comes to the New Testament, the word for atonement is broadened in its meaning, and it takes in other parts of the entire work of redemption. But the Old Testament deals with just this one particular part, and that is the covering of our sins. Now, the King James translators chose to translate catalage as atonement in the New Testament when the word there should actually be reconciliation. And whether we consider that an error or not, I, I don't know. Uh, if it is an error, it would be a very glaring one because the translators make Paul to say that we have received the atonement. But strictly speaking, we do not receive the atonement. God receives the atonement because Christ is the satisfaction of the wrath of God and of divine justice. But we don't pick up the King James Bible and quibble over this particular word because at the time that the King James translators translated the Greek word, it, it had taken on a different meaning. It had that broader scope of meaning. And still today, when we speak of atonement, we don't just put the Old Testament meaning on that word, but we do expand it to different parts of the Lord's redemption. And so, with that little bit of background, I'd like to go, uh, for us to go to our text tonight. And this is a very lengthy portion of Scripture, but it is necessary, I think, for us to read it all, to keep it all together, so that you can see the many activities that took place on the Day of Atonement. So, if you'll look in your Bible, please, Leviticus chapter 16, beginning at verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not, not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with a linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering which is for himself and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation." 
And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness." And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer him an offering... Uh, and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. And the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall one carry forth without the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, 
On the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath, a rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priest, and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel, for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. There is a deep river that runs in that passage of Scripture. It's very rich, and I regret that I only have time this evening just to skim over just a few of the teachings that are here. This evening I want to give you six Old Testament statements about the Day of Atonement. And then I want to give you six New Testament truths that correspond to those statements. And all of these will have something to do with the supper that we celebrate tonight. Now, you'll notice this, that first, the Day of Atonement was a day of humiliation. Now, if you look at verses 3 and 4, it says, Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, He shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with the linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. Well, how do we see the humiliation of Aaron the priest? And before I answer that question, everything that we're going to talk about tonight in some way will speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Aaron's humiliation that's shown here is a type of Christ's humiliation. And each part of the ceremonies that are gone through here as they're played out, each of those has something to say about what Christ went through in order to become a perfect sacrifice for our sins. As I said, Aaron's humiliation is a type of Christ's humiliation. Now, unfortunately, what I have to do tonight, I have to give you a really fast, short course in tabernacle typology, and that'll help you to understand this. But Aaron's humiliation is actually revealed in his clothing. He was appointed by God to be the high priest of Israel. And since Israel was at first a theocratic nation, the the high priest was actually the the, uh, most important person of the religious economy. The high priest, of course, would represent the high priestly work that Jesus Christ did for us. And so that position of being a high priest is a very highly exalted position. And because of that, the high priest was dressed in very special clothing, a type of clothing that set him apart from all the other priests that attended at the tabernacle. In Ephesians chapter 28 and verse number 2, it says, excuse me, Exodus chapter 28, verse number 2, And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. Now, tonight in the picture that we have, uh, you can see the beautiful clothes that the high priest wore. And the different pieces that make up this outfit, all of it has something to say about Christ. 
There's the fine needlework with the threads of gold. There are jewels that were on the breastplate that, that had the names of the tribes of Israel on them. There was the linen undergarment that symbolized the righteousness of Christ. The blue robe of the ephod was the royalty of Christ and it stood for the heavenly home of Christ. The belt that held all of these garments in place was utilitarian in meaning because it stood for all the many works that, of service that Christ did for us. And then there are other pieces of clothing that we don't have time to get in tonight, but these will suffice to show you what we've talked about, that the high priest is actually a walking picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this picture, we're really unable to see all the beauty of those garments, but it's been said that the garments of the high priest of Israel were so dazzling that they outshone the beauty of all of the garments of the high priest of all of the heathen gods. But we notice here, as we've read about the Day of Atonement, that the priest did not wear this particular beautiful outfit. Instead, according to what we see in this next picture, is that he wore just the simple clothing of the other priest. The garments that he wore were ordinary. It was the white linen coat, it was the linen breeches, it was the linen hat. And so the high priest dressed just like the others, and the reason that he did that was because of humility. There was no pride in wearing a special fancy clothing. The priest is a minister. He is a servant of the people. And what he was about to do was perform sacrifice for him and the, for them. And, what the, and the work that he was going to do was a very unpleasant, bloody type of work. Now we find in that a, a New Testament counterpart, a New Testament truth. And the truth is that Christ laid aside his visible glory. Uh, we've been studying that in uh, our fundamentals class. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus was the glory of the Father. He was God of very God, and yet for our sakes, he was willing to step down from that throne of glory to be made in the likeness of men. And when he stepped down, he gave up the glories of heaven, and he never gave it a second thought that he needed to hold on to that power and that prestige that he had, and he just became ordinary. The Bible tells us that he became like a servant made in the likeness of men. And yet when he stepped down, he never surrendered any of his godly attributes. He was God in the flesh. God in the flesh. He was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And when the high priest took off his beautiful garments on this one day of the year, it didn't mean that he was no longer the high priest. And Jesus, when he robed himself in flesh, did not mean that he was any less God. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so on the day of atonement, the high priest put aside the beautiful garments in order that he might show Christ. Christ could not suffer for us as a regal spirit in heaven. He had to lay aside all of it to come as a servant in the likeness of men. Now secondly, the Day of Atonement was a day of sacrifice. 
And it wasn't a day of just one sacrifice. There were many. Aaron offered a bullock for himself and for his family. There were two goats that pictured a sin offering for the people. There was a ram for a burnt offering for Aaron and his house. There was a ram for a burnt offering for the people. And actually, the, the offering that Aaron made for himself and for his own house has no counterpart in Christ. And that's because Christ never needed to make a sacrifice for his own sins. There was no sin in him. And so he would never have to have a personal sin offering. But because Aaron has to represent Christ, the first thing that he had to do was to go in and make an offering for his own sins. And then when his sins were absolved, that meant that he could actually represent Christ. Now, that sinlessness of Christ is indirectly taught by these offerings. But that's not really where I want to concentrate I'd rather for us to to look at the selection of two goats as a sin offering. And we do that because there is a great truth that's taught here that could not be seen in any of the offerings, other offerings that were made by Israel. On the Day of Atonement, there were two goats that were taken. One was killed, but the other was treated differently. Let's begin reading again at verse number 7. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. Now what Aaron was to do was to cast lots for the selection of these two goats. And the reason that was done, so that there wouldn't be any partiality, he wouldn't show any partiality about which goat should be killed and which one would be turned loose. And the one on which the lot to the Lord fell, that was the goat to be taken and killed. But the other goat was to have the sins of the people confessed on his head, and that goat was taken out into the wilderness and turned loose, never to be seen again. And that goat, as we see in Scripture, is called the scapegoat. Scapegoat in the Hebrew is azazel. It means the goat of departure. Now, I have two, two pictures that I want to show you. The first one is the high priest confessing the sins of the people on the head of the scapegoat. And the second picture is a man leading that same goat out into the wilderness to turn it loose, never to be seen again. Now, two goats were used in this picture because one goat would not have been able to represent both aspects of Christ's work. One goat was killed. That represents Christ being put to death on the cross. But the second goat was set free after the sins of the people were confessed on his head. And there is a New Testament truth that is the counterpart to that. It's a very vivid symbolism. And the truth is that Christ removes and forgets sin. The second goat was not killed because sending him away into the wilderness was a symbol that sins are taken away, never to be seen again. And nobody knew what happened to that goat. Nobody really cared. And similarly, Christ carried our sins far away from us, and God does not care to remember those sins any longer. 
Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And isn't that just a tremendous picture? We are justified by the blood of Christ. We are uncondemned because he's taken all of our sins away. By his blood, the scripture says, our sins are gone. And we can show that tonight as we take the supper in the cup that symbolizes that blood that takes our sins away. Now thirdly, the day of atonement was a day of imputation. The day of atonement is a day of imputation. And imputation means to charge to the account of another. And there are actually two sides to imputation. In order for sinners to be justified, the perfect righteousness of Christ has to be charged to our account. Now, during his life, Jesus earned righteousness. Of course, he was righteous because he was God. By virtue of being God, he's righteous, and God is inherently righteous. But that type of righteousness is incommunicable to us. Jesus had to earn righteousness, and he did that by keeping God's law perfectly. And that earned righteousness is the righteousness that is charged to us. You see, we're unable to keep God's law perfectly, and yet that's exactly what God demands of all of us. He says we must keep everything that he said to the exact letter of the law. We can't do that. And so Christ had to do that for us. And so it is by his merits, by keeping the law perfectly, that he, that he, that he makes us righteous. We have faith in him. When we believe in him, we're made righteous. And that's simply what's called being justified by faith. If someone were to ask you, is salvation by good works? Well, you being the above average theology students, you would answer that question, yes and no. Don't you love yes and no questions? You can't can't be wrong. Or yes and no answers. You can't be wrong with those. You would say yes, because the righteousness by which we are made whole again is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that was earned by his good works. It's his good works by which we are justified. And then the answer is no, because there are no good works that we can do. Nothing that we can do can actually justify us. So this this kind of imputation in particular is not actually seen in the sacrifice. It's implied. Instead, the other type of imputation is shown here. Let's go back to the scapegoat. Look at verse number 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness." And so what is the truth that is taught here? The truth is that God laid our sins on Christ. Jesus was was crucified and God put our sins on him. And there we find the reason why God had to turn his back on Jesus as he hung on the cross. And that's because he was made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
1 Peter 2.24 says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. And so we have two imputations, two transactions, a double transaction. Our sins go to the account of Christ and his righteousness goes to our account. And both of those things take place when we put our faith in Christ. When we believe, the blood has the power to cleanse us from our sins and to take away our sins and we are thereby justified by faith. Now fourthly, the Day of Atonement was a day of service. It was a day of service and a very long day of service at that. On this day, there were no other priests that assisted. Look at verse 17. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. Now God told the high priest that you have to do this work alone. I'm sure that he thought about this day often. I'm sure that throughout the year, knowing that it was approaching, that he thought over every step that he had to take. There was no work that he was supposed to do that could be left out. Not a single duty can, can go untouched. But he did the work. The people didn't do anything. For them, there was a day of rest that was called. Verse number 29. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. And what is the truth? I think you probably already recognize it, that Christ did his work alone. Nobody can help Christ do his work. You remember that before he went to the cross, that Peter said, I'll go with you. Thomas said, let's go with him. We'll go to the death also. But Jesus said neither one of them can go. In fact, none of them held with him throughout the entire night. Now, the work that Christ had to do was a singular work, and that's why there is no part of salvation that we can claim as our own. There are no sacraments that we can keep for salvation. If there were then Christ would not do his work alone. Here we are at this supper tonight, and if it was necessary for us to take this supper in order to be saved, then Christ would not do his work alone. And if our will is determinative for our salvation, then that means that Christ did not do his work alone. Oh, the great rallying cry of salvation is sole fide, faith alone, sole gratia, grace alone, sole deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And salvation is meant to be that way, so there's no one who can say they had a part of Christ's work. Christ says, stay out of this. This is for my glory. And he does the work alone. You see, the worst affront that you could ever make to the sacrifice of Christ is to claim that you have a part. Salvation by works would do nothing other than to trample on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, the Day of Atonement was a day of acceptance. Now, the purpose of the Day of Atonement was for what? To make atonement. There was an offering that was made for the sins of the people, and that offering must be accepted. God has to accept the offering or else the sins of the people remain on them and they're not forgiven. 
So what the high priest would do is he would take the offering into the presence of God. He went behind the the veil of the Holy of Holies and that's where God showed himself in this brilliant light that's called the Shekinah glory. And that light appeared between the wings of the cherubim on, on the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest took blood and he went in and he sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat. Now next we see a picture of the priest preparing to sprinkle that blood. And by the way, the mercy seat, that the word mercy seat is the same word as propitiation. That Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the satisfaction to God for our sins. He's the mercy seat for us. In verse 15, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Now God has given very strict instructions about how this was to be done. The blood was to be brought in in compliance to God's instructions, and when it was, God accepted the blood. And when he accepted that blood, he accepted all those that are represented in that blood. They all come into the favor of God. Now, the New Testament truth that we find in this is that we are accepted because of Christ's blood. Just as the high priest went into the inner sanctuary, which was the figure of the true, so Christ took his own precious blood into the inner sanctuary of the heavenly throne room of God. And there he sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9.12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now as you look at that 12th verse, do you wonder what he means when it says that he entered in once into the holy place? Well, we go back to Leviticus 16, and what did Aaron do? He entered twice into the holy place. The first time, he went in to make that offering for his own sins so that he could represent Christ. The second time, he went in to offer for the sins of the people. Christ only had to go in one time because he had no sin. So he entered one time. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, I don't know about you. Well, I think I do. I know the character of Brian Baptist members. We're, we're still people who believe in the power of the blood, aren't we? We still believe in the power of the cross. We believe in the power of that blood that was shed. And there are so many people today that despise the cross because when we speak of this, we're speaking of a very bloody religion. And on the Day of Atonement, there was much blood. Many, many animals were sacrificed. But the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, some have removed blood from their hymn books. They want, don't want to sing songs that talk about the blood of Christ. They don't want to sing about blood. But we look at the Bible and we find out that in heaven, they're still singing about the blood. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, And they sung a new song. This is in heaven. They sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood 
out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. In Revelation chapter 7, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And what is the New Testament truth there? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then lastly... It was a day of affliction. Back to verse 29 again. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls. Now while the people watched what the priest did for them, they were smitten with soul affliction. And actually they, they couldn't see what was done inside of the tabernacle. But they did know what was supposed to take place. They could see the animals that were sacrificed outside, on the altar outside. They could see the sin that was confessed on the head of the goat. And they could see that man take the goat out into the wilderness and then he came back alone. But they couldn't see what was going on in the tabernacle. Now they watched him carry the blood in, but they didn't see what he did. And when Christ actually suffered for our sins, nobody saw him. Because what God did was to blacken out the the universe, blacken out the stars of heaven, the sun, the moon. Everything was shut out for three hours. There was total pitch blackness as Jesus made propitiation for our sins to God the Father. And so there for three hours, Christ propitiated God and he expiated the guilt of our sin. Now the people couldn't see the priest. There were other times and... Uh, other, other sacrifices that were made in certain days of worship where the priest was wearing those beautiful garments that we talked about in the very beginning. And he would go into the tabernacle and they couldn't see him then as well, but they could hear him. Now, the next picture that we have is a picture of bells that are on the fringe of the high priest's garment. And those bells had to always be ringing when that priest was at work in the tabernacle. Never could they stop. There was no place in the tabernacle for the priest to sit down. There was no time of rest there. He always had to be busy and the bells always had to be ringing. And that's a picture for us. And that picture shows us that that Christ is the one who's always busy in intercession for us. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, they've said that one of the things they had to do is that when the high priest was in the temple or the tabernacle going about his business, if those bells would stop, that they actually had a rope tied around the ankle of the high priest, and if they stopped, he would yank him out of there right quick. Maybe he fainted, maybe it got too hot. And you think it's hot around here, it would have been hot in the tabernacle. It has three coverings over it, it has no windows in it. It's out in the middle of the desert where they set it up. And so it would have been a very stifling place, I think. But the priest had to be busy, had to carry on the work that he was supposed to do. So the people, though, as they contemplated what was done by the high priest, they were afflicted in their souls. 
And this is the same way that we need to come to the supper tonight, that we come with this deep contrition in our heart, that we're smitten, that we're struck by the work that Christ has done. Whenever we sing the songs that we sang, like we sang tonight, and we sing about the blood, or we sing about the cross, or we sing about the sacrifice, we sing about all these things that are attendant to what we do in the supper, I don't know about you, but there are times when my heart drops down to my stomach. That I can't hardly stand to sing sometimes. The tears come to your eyes as you think about what Christ did. And I love the silence that we have in, in, as we think about the things that we're doing here tonight. So I wonder, how do people take this lightly? How can they make frivolity of this? And even more, I wonder this. How does a Christian, how would a person in Israel skip the Day of Atonement? And how would a person in the Lord's church skip the time when we come together to to celebrate this great supper and think about the offering that Christ gave for our sins? So what is the truth that's taught here? Well, the truth is that Christ's atonement is realized through repentance. I mean, how could we ever come to a real understanding of how terrible our crimes are against God unless we look at Christ with repentance of sin? We're wicked and vile sinners. And in order for us to be redeemed, what the Son of God had to do was to come to this earth and offer His own blood as a sacrifice. 1 Peter 1 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. Sins were atoned. They're hidden from God under the blood of Jesus. And it's faith in that blood that allows the payment for sin to be applied to you. And you can't have that payment until you realize your sins and you repent of them and you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now the Day of Atonement was a symbol, but it was a representation of a much greater day None of the sacrifices that were made there could actually take away sins. I mean, the Bible says the blood of bulls and goats, that's never sufficient to take away sin. But there was another day that came. There was a day of actual atonement, and that place was in Jerusalem. The day was in Jerusalem at a place that was called Golgotha. And that's where Jesus was nailed to the cross and his blood flowed freely down. And there was a cleansing fountain of blood that flowed freely and washed away my sins and yours if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now tonight we look back on that. Israel looked forward to it. But either way, it's the cross and the blood that takes our sins away. Israel had their figures. They had their symbols. And we have our symbols here tonight. But these aren't the things that take our sins away. It is the blood of of Jesus Christ shed for us. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you as we prepare for the supper tonight. We think about the great sacrifice that you made for sin.
We thank you for Jesus Christ and what great pictures that we've seen in Leviticus chapter 16 to make all these portrayals of what you did for us. The intercession, the sacrifice, the, all the blood and everything that took place, it all speaks of you. Sins are taken away in the picture of the goats. All of these things speak of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. And as we prepare to take this supper tonight, we realize that the blood is represented in the cup. And we realize that the bread represents your body that was broken for us. And we thank you so much, Lord. And we take of the symbols because we do want to remember what you did for us in our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for these things. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.